1994, Disney came out with a movie that was just wildly popular. It's called The Lion King. You remember that? It's one of those movies that uh, just had great impact to our kids because if they were rowdy, we could say, hey, come on, we're putting on Lion King, and they could watch it for the 47th time and be happy with that. If you remember the narrative, there's a king uh, who's called Mufasa who has a little prince, a son whose name is Simba. And King Mufasa is the king of the pride lands there in Africa. Simba is his prince, meaning that one day he will be king. And he, the king, is kind of raising up a little boy so that one day he will be a leader among leaders. There's an uncle to Simba whose name is Scar. He's the brother of King Mufasa. And his life is filled with rage because Scar really wants to have the leadership position in the throne, and he's willing to do whatever it takes to get it, including killing his own brother. And he plots, plots and he strategizes how that might come about. He actually pitches it one day so that Simba, through disobedience, and Mufasa, who comes to his rescue and sort of champions him to be different. In the middle of that experience, uh, Scar moves a wild herd of wildebeest through. And if you remember, Mufasa is really mortally wounded in that. In fact, Scar ensures that Mufasa will die. He's longing that his son would die as well, but he doesn't. In fact, he survives it. Now, I wanted to pick up the narrative right there. It's a riveting scene, if you remember the movie. It's one of those scenes that, although you know it's an animation that is made for kids, if you're a dad or you're a grown man, it might be one of those scenes that you just kind of have to act like in the moment something just flew in your eye because you don't want everybody knowing that that tear is coming from that movie. It's one of those kind of scenes. Now, here's the way the script reads. Simba, of course, recognizes his dad is dead. And Scar comes to him and says, Simba, what have you done? The young Simba says, there were, there were wildebeests, and he was trying to save me. It was an accident. I didn't mean to make it happen. And Scar says, of course. Of course you didn't. No one ever means for these things to happen. But the king is dead, and you, and if it weren't for you, he'd still be alive. Simba looks at his uncle now saying, with real heartfelt questions, what am I going to do? Scar says, run, run away, and never return. And if you remember that image, you see Simba running away, and behind Scar, the hyenas start moving forward. And with two words, we get the interest of Scar. Kill him. Have you ever had failures in your life? Failures in your life that made you want to run away? Run away from God, the things of God, the kingdom of God? Have you ever sensed the overwhelming call of the enemy to run and at the same time, recognize that he's not telling you to run for your own good. That his interest is your destruction. That's what we're going to talk about today. Failures. And, and what is God doing in the midst of the failures? Now, what is not in the script 
and the Lion King, but is there an underlying way is what you think about yourself, or in the case of Lion King, what Simba thinks about himself in the midst of failures is very important. When you fail, what you think about you is very important, but really what you think God thinks about you is what is most important. Because what you think God thinks about you in the midst of your failures will either put you on a pathway of running away from Him or running to Him for restoration. I'm going to tell you from my own life, a personal experience, that oftentimes I missed it. I was thinking God was thinking different thoughts than He was thinking. And that caused me to run. I love the Bible. I love to read the Bible. I love the narrative of the Bible, both the meta-narrative and the smaller narratives that are throughout them that, pe that piece together this grand story of the Bible. Throughout the narratives, you find great people of faith, great heroes of faith who do amazing things. They, they do things that are amazing unto God and unto people. But you won't find people in the Bible like that, that God doesn't most often tell us that they're also people of great failure. The people that we really champion as heroes of the faith, and rightly so, they do amazing things, are also the people that we say, wow, I don't know that I would have told that. Today we're going to talk about one such person. He's one of the early adopters of this gospel message. His name is Simon. He's actually hanging around and being stirred about by the revival that God is bringing about to the world through the preaching of a man named John. We know him as John the Baptist. Simon was listening to John the Baptist and really saw him as a great rabbi, one to teach and one to listen to and shape life out of that instruction. And God was certainly moving. What, si what John was doing was, was helping people to discover the need for repentance. He's calling them to think differently about life and about themselves. He's not calling them to religion, which that's already going on in the city of Jerusalem. He's outside the city of Jerusalem in the wilderness, and he's calling people to repentance. And he's calling them to have a baptism of repentance. It's a baptism of water. And uh, Simon is there, and he's hearing that, and he's hearing what John is saying is that uh, there is coming one who will baptize you with fire. He, he's one that will change you drastically. Uh, this is a change that you can't bring about on your own. This, this is going to be a transformation for you, a new life for you. That one is coming. Such that when Jesus came on the scenes, all the preliminary work that John had been doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is now pointing to Jesus. And quite literally, when Jesus shows up, John points him out. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, behold the one that has been told by the prophets of old. He's here. Now, immediately, Simon, who has been hanging out with John, says, okay, John, your, your job is done you have led us to the Messiah, and now we're going to follow the Messiah. And that's, that's exactly what John was hoping for. So Andrew, Simon's brother, points out, hey, I really believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who we've been longing for. 
Simon and Andrew link up with Jesus and, and they hang out where Jesus is hanging out. And where Jesus is hanging out is on the northern portion of the Lake Tiberias. It's also called the Sea of Galilee. And that's good because that's where Simon lives. He's in those coastal fishing areas. He lives in one of those villages right there. So he can make easy access to the water and gain access to, to his livelihood. He's a fisherman. So one day Jesus is there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and John and his brother, are, Andrew, are actually mending or cleaning their nets. They've been fishing all night, call absolutely nothing. Don't you just hate when that happens? I'm not much of a fisherman, so I don't have a big expectation when I go. But I'm thinking every now and then, something's got to be hungry out there. So here's these professional fishermen that have been fishing all night. You have to fish at night if you're them because you're fishing with nets. And the best thing is we don't want the fish to see the net coming. So you do it at night. So now they've been fishing all night. They see the rays of the sun start to come out. So they're like, okay, guys, no sense going any further. We've caught nothing. Let's go on into shore. So he and Andrew go to shore, and they're cleaning their nets. That means they're getting everything out of the nets that's not fish. And while they're doing so, Jesus says, hey, guys, I, I'm going to get in your boat, and I'm just going to go out just a bit so that everybody can see me and everybody can hear me, and I'm going to teach. And so you've got it in your mind, don't you, that there's Simon and Andrew cleaning their nets while Jesus is teaching in their boat. And when he's finished, giving these great words of authority as the Son of God can, when he's finished, he looks at Peter or Simon and, and Andrew, and he says to them, uh, guys, why don't you go on out and cast your nets? Now, we know enough about Peter, uh, Simon Peter, to know what he's thinking. He's probably thinking, you kidding me? We've been out there all night. Have you not been seeing us down here? We've got the nets entirely clean. You want us to go back to catch nothing again in order to clean the nets again? You kind of get this idea that that may be what he's thinking in his mind. I don't know. He didn't say any of that. He just gets in the boat and he says, okay. You get the sense, though, he's thinking, hmm, I don't know how this is going to go. But he gets out there and he does exactly what Jesus tells him to do. Before he knows it, he's, he's just hauling in the catch of catch. And he has to call out to the partners, hey, guys, come bring the other boat. There's no way we're going to get all this fish in here. And so they do, and the Bible says, actually, there's so much fish that both boats begin to sink now Jesus is understood by Simon as not just being a rabbi, as not just being the Messiah forecasted from the prophets of old, but this is one who has power over creation. And he says to Jesus, you need to get away from me because I'm a sinner. I don't know where you are in this movement of faith that God has you on, but there's obviously some part of you that's moving because you're here. The first beginnings of it comes to this conclusion. God, I'm assuming that you don't know the sin in my life. You better get away from me. Because if you're holy as you say you're holy, and if you're altogether right as you are saying in the scripture, then you don't want any part of me with you. That's what Simon was coming to a conclusion of. Lord, do you not know? You need to depart from me for I'm a sinful man. What he didn't know at that point is Jesus had come to make sinners to be saints. 
Jesus had come to take away all that sin and replace it with his own righteousness. Jesus had come to set that man apart, just like he's come to set you apart. Jesus had come to not just transform him, to make him into a saint, to make him one that was declared to be right before God, but Jesus had come to put this man on a life mission. That's what salvation is all about. It's not just you and me being saved unto heaven one day that we can live gloriously with him. It's being saved for today that we might live with him in his kingdom today in this world and have a purpose that's significant. A lot of us have an embeddedness about us that we just want to make a difference. Jesus says, you come to me and I'll only, not only make you to make a difference, I'll empower you to be different as you make a difference. So Peter's getting that. In fact, he's getting it so much that in these early days, Jesus says, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Peter, which is the Greek name for the rock. Not that rock. <laughs> but the rock. And what he's meaning by that, he's, he's, he's saying, I'm going to make your name from henceforth to be the rock because you're getting it. Your faith is going to be bedrock. Now, pause. Because there's a distraction that goes on in Christianity today about faith that is not biblical. Faith in and of itself is not what makes you a rock. The object of your faith is what makes you to be the rock. So Peter is recognizing this. That the object of his faith is that God has sent his son, the Messiah, Jesus, and I'm standing with him. And he knows I'm a sinner and he's still willing to stand with me. He's coming to this conclusion that he can make the impact in his life. And he is recognizing that and Jesus knows this because he knows all things. So it's an amazing setup that we're getting here from, from Peter. The, Depart from me, but Jesus is saying, ah, nope. You don't need to be afraid. I'm going to make you to be a fisherman of men. I've come to transform your life. I've come to make you whole and right and put you on a significant path that you'll make a great difference in the world. That's the story of God for all of us. That God wishes that none of us would perish, that all of us would come to him by faith, that he is the savior of the world and submit our life to him that we might live with great impact. You don't have to work 8 to 5 and say, I'm working for the weekend. You don't have to get to my age at 52 and say, is this all there is to it? You can have great impact today. And God has come in his son to make your life that kind of impactful. That it's not just about changing the world as we know it, but changing the world into eternity. That's what God's calling us to do and to be and to have. Now, now, Peter's one of these guys that's just a natural-born leader. God has made him to be this way. He's just a leader. He's a de facto leader early on in the life of the disciples. You know, he's always speaking up for the disciples. And he's, a, he's an early adopter. When things get rolled out, Peter's like, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And he just goes right for it. In fact, he's the first one among the whole group that declares before the, the others around to Jesus, you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Nobody beat him to that. He, he was the first to do that. And he's part of the inner circle. I mean, Jesus has his 12. They're like his buds. They're great friends of his. But he's got this inner circle of three that Peter is invited into. 
he, he's, Jesus is really pouring into this guy because being a natural leader is one thing, but being a natural leader that has servant-mindedness displayed by Jesus Christ and adapted by Jesus, that takes leadership to a whole new level. And so Jesus is doing this with him. So he's among the top three with the disciples. He's the guy that gets to experience things that the others don't necessarily get to experience. For instance, Jesus, as you know, has humbled himself and he's come in the, in the flesh of mankind. But on a mountaintop experience one day, Moses and Elijah come. You know, they're with God. They come down to be with Jesus, and they're talking. This is a pivotal point in his ministry because from that point forward, he's going to begin moving to Jerusalem for his crucifixion and resurrection. They're talking about this. And Jesus is in his glorified state. And here Peter is among the three that are seeing this. You remember what Peter is saying? Wow, this is incredible. We ought to do something to honor these guys. So he's in the midst of that. Jesus is anticipating near the end of his life when he knows he's about to die. He's anticipating one more meal. And he wants that last meal to be the meal of the Passover. Because the Passover has been from history's sake, pointing to Jesus and the sacrifice that he's willing to make and all that will occur in that. So he's wanting to have this one last meal with them and it's going to be the Passover meal. And he tells Peter and John, uh, go make sure this is all set up right. With great anticipation, Jesus says, I've been wanting to have this meal with you. So he tells Peter, go get it right. So of the heroes of the faith, Peter's on up there, isn't he? I mean, he's the guy that we say, man, he's getting it. He's in close proximity to Christ. His life is given to Christ, and God is really moving in his life. But man, is, is this guy ever riddled with failure? In fact, if you think about those things that we would think greatly about Peter, we also see the tie-in of failure. One day, the disciples are in a boat. Jesus had instructed them to go across the northern point of the Sea of Galilee. And he's been up praying for them. But he comes to them in the dark. He comes to them. And remember, he's walking on water. Now, for some of you, that just, uh, that's just crazy. Are you kidding me? Nobody walks on water. Well, you're right. Nobody walks on water except the one who created water. No one can disobey the laws of gravity except the one that put the law in place. So, so Jesus is walking on water. And Peter is this guy who says, oh, oh, I want some of that. Lord, this is how the King James says, bid me to come to you. We would say, wow, I want to do some of that. Call me, Lord. And he does. Peter steps out. And that's the point. That faith in Jesus is great. But it's also the point that he took his eyes off Jesus. And he began to sink. Remember when I told you that Peter was among the three that was on the Mount of Transfiguration? Actually saw the glory of God in Christ? Saw it? And Peter says, oh, we ought to make some tabernacles right here. We ought to make some temporary dwellings so that we might honor these guys. Oh, man, did he ever blow that? Because Moses and Elijah are not like the Son of God. There's no sense putting them in the same posture of honor. The Son of God gets the greater honor all the time. But Peter just kind of failed at recognizing that. When he was foretelling Jesus was about his death, he was trying to explain to the disciples, as he did several times, that he would die at the hands of the Romans, that it would be a, an executioner's way of the cross. <laughs> Remember what Peter does? 
He's privileged to be in the mix of that. But he said, hey, 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 Lord, come here for a minute, please. Can we talk about this? Because you don't need to be saying that. You don't need to be saying anything about the Romans killing you. We, you are here to put down the Romans. You can't let them kill you. So go back out there and tell them something different. Jesus looks at Peter in the eye in his failure, and he says, um, you're Satan right now. Do you not recognize that? That you're moving against the will of God? Did you know that? You need to get behind me. You need to get where I am. The night before his crucifixion, Jesus says to just three of them, including Peter, now you guys hang out here for a minute. I want you to watch and I want you to pray intently. Now they ought to know that Jesus is really burdened this night. This night is different than every other night. He's just explained. Everything that you read in John chapter 13 through John 17 is the explanation that Jesus is giving on that night. So this is a big deal. They, they were knowing what was happening here. So to watch and pray is no little bitty command. I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray. And remember, Jesus prays with real earnestness. There's a real angst in him because in the flesh, he doesn't want to experience the misery that he's about to experience. But in the spirit, he wants to be given to the will of God. So he's praying things that you and I would have a difficult time praying. God, I don't want to drink this cup, but nevertheless, if it's your will that I drink this cup of suffering, I'll do it. And I'm thinking he's needing a little bit of encouragement from his three top guys, right? So he comes to them who are to be watching and praying, and he finds them sound asleep. Hey, come on, guys. Can you not stay awake? Pray. And he goes back over, and he prays more. And now he's praying with such intensity that his sweat is like great, great drops of blood falling out. And when he wants to have some encouragement from his guys, Peter, his guy, and others, hey, are you still asleep? Are you kidding me? Get up, watch, and pray. And he goes a third time, and he does that same thing. And he's praying with earnestness, because it's been going on a few hours now. And he comes back, and he sees him sound asleep again. He says, okay, it's enough. I get it. So they all get up, and then Judas shows up with this huge horde of people, and they come to arrest Jesus. You remember this? Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek. It's the sign, the betrayer sign, the one that I kiss, because it's nightfall. The one that I kiss, that's the one you grab. Well, Peter is recognizing what's going on. The high priest is there. His servant is there. Remember what he does? He grabs his knife, which every fisherman's going to have a knife, right? He grabs his knife and he tries to just get him. <laughs> he misses and only gets the ear. And the ear is now on the ground. I can just see this in my imagination. Jesus gets that ear, puts it back on that man, heals that man. Put your knife away. then there was this one betrayal. The failure of failures. Peter, the de facto leader, says, now look, Lord, I know some of the others around me are a little bit weak, but you can count on me. I'm with you all the way to the end. I'll never deny you. Though I die, I will not deny you. Don't we regret saying words like that. Jesus looks at him in the eyes and says, Peter, the sun's going to rise in the morning, and before that sun rises, the crows are going to announce its arrival. And before they announce the arrival of the new day, you will have betrayed me three times. 
as Jesus was taken off, one of the places he went to is an interrogation among Caiaphas' house. They're in that place. Peter is actually out on the courtyard of the house. He's just standing out there. A girl comes up to him. Oh, you were with him. You're one of them. No, 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 no. No, I'm not. Later, another girl comes up to him. You're one of them. You're with him. I'm telling you with an oath, he says, I swear I'm not with him. And the third time, well into the morning hours, there's a coal fire that's been burning. Peter and others are standing around that coal fire just trying to stay warm. Evidently, he speaks because one of the bystanders says, ah, your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean. You're one of them, aren't you? And this time, not just with a denial, not just with an oath, Jesus hears him dog cuss the people and say emphatically, I am not with him. In that moment, Jesus catches eyes with Peter, doesn't say a word, and the rooster crows. Failure. The Bible says that Peter took off running, weeping, broken. We all experience failure. Some are deeper, darker than others, but we all experience them. I've had my moments like that. What I think about myself and what I think about God thinking about me in that moment will either put me on a course of running far, far away from Him or it will put me on a path of restoration. We all have the failures. How are you viewing God in the midst of the failure? Maybe you're thinking that Jesus is... is, uh, disappointed and upset might be so three on the third day Jesus is resurrected from the grave the women go to the grave because they're thinking they're going to finish the process of long-term burial (laughs) when they get there the stones rolled away and Jesus is resurrected and God has given some messengers to let them know what's going on one of the messengers singles Mary Magdalene out and Messenger says, basically, the Lord said, tell the disciples and Peter to go on to Galilee. He'll meet them there. Now, I've underlined and Peter because I want you to see that. Because I think that gives us some insight to what's going on in Peter's mind. I think it helps us to see that Peter, in his failure, no longer saw himself as a disciple. That he had been removed from that that his failure had revoked or discounted the call of God in his life. So Jesus, right out of the gate, wants to make sure on the morning of the resurrection that the message gets to the disciples and to Peter, I'll meet you in Galilee. Now you might say, oh, I bet he will. I bet what he's going to do is give them the tongue lashing that they need or even more. I bet he's going to say, what do you mean all of you running away, and you, Peter, of all people, you made the bold proclamation that you'd be with me to the bitter end. You weren't even there when two girls asked you about me. Now, if you think that's the way Jesus is going to respond, then you've misunderstood the gospel altogether. 
that sink in for a minute. As I've been a gospel man all my life, I've known nothing else but the gospel. My parents raised me up with the gospel. I didn't surrender to it until a certain point, but I've known the gospel all my life. But I still struggle in the midst of failure with the idea of what God is thinking about me. And sometimes in that struggle, it will keep me in a place of misery when God wanted to put me in a place of recovery and restoration and hope and purposefulness. Here's a guy that's been living with Jesus for a while. He ought to know if anybody ought to know. Here's a guy that's been living in the name of Jesus in the household a long time. We ought to know these things. I get that, but we struggle. Maybe you're thinking that's how Jesus views you. You think that if you're thinking that way, you will potentially run away from the call of God. You'll forfeit what he's calling you to do, and you will live in the shadows of idleness, and you will live in the midst of shame, mistakenly thinking that God has put you there. No, he hasn't. That's not his purpose. Maybe you're like me in those times of failure. You hear your mom saying, you just wait till your daddy gets home. Maybe that's why you don't want to come to church some. Maybe that's why you're struggling with, I'm going to go 15 minutes over. Maybe that's why you mumble when we sing. Maybe that's why you don't read your Bible every day and engage God in his word. Maybe that's why you don't have private worship time. Maybe that's part of the reason that you're viewing him as, you just wait till daddy gets home. I don't know about you, but I knew when my dad was coming home. He was a federal employee. There was definitive times he was coming home. I knew when he would come home. I knew the routine of his coming. I knew exactly where he was going. And I'm telling you, I'd put myself in every other place but where he was. And if you're viewing God like that, when you fail, you're doing the same thing. And this story is helping us to discover that maybe you and I need to be thinking really differently about this. Well, I'm going to just mention three points out of the text today. So let's read the text. I'm just going to mention the points and let them settle a little bit. Beginning in the 21st chapter of John, verse 3 Simon Peter says to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. Then they went out and got into the boat. Now, you know, John gives us a little bit of a, a jump, fast jump there. When, when he says they went out and got in the boat, they're actually going 85 miles away. That would be like me saying, hey, I'm going fishing. And I'm going fishing up at Chattanooga. That's 85 miles away. So this isn't like uh, I'm going fishing to clear my head. This isn't like I'm going fishing because I just need some time alone. Nope. I'm going back. That's what he's saying. I'm going back. Anybody want to come with me? And they go. There's six of them that go with him. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. 
And now they were not able to haul it in because it was a quantity of fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, who is John, therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in, in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. They were not far from the land, about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in the, in the place, and the fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of fish, large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he would glorify God. In other words, this is the process of death for the Roman executioners, and he would die at their hands. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, Peter was shocked, no doubt elated that Jesus was there before him. He was resurrected. Could there be any greater hope than the resurrection of Christ? So he's, he's in that moment, but at the same time, he is having a difficult time wrapping his head around the notion of what the world is going to be like post-resurrected Christ and where he fits. So he's sitting on the shore with the Son of God wondering, has my failure not thwarted everything that you and I have been talking about and everything that you've been building in me, everything that you came to do? Is my failure not bigger than that? And of course, what Jesus is saying is no. So here's the three quick points. Well, let me rephrase that. Here's the three points. Number one, you must not revert to our old ways without Christ when we fail. It will prove to be fruitless. I'm going fishing. That's what Peter said. I'm going back. I'm going back to the life that I know. I'm going back to what I gave up. If I've messed up this time with Christ, then I'm just going back to life before Christ. It's what's known to me. It's what's familiar. It's what's safe. He had already left the boats and the nets, but he knew where he left them. He was going back there. He would start over again. I've messed this one up. He blew it. Some of you might be thinking that way today as well. 
your thoughts might be that you had purpose, you had intentionality, and, and you really believed that God was going to help you to make a great impact in the world. But along the way, you've had some failures, and those failures might be significant enough or mounting enough that you question, is it even possible for you to still have influence in the world today? Can you have impact in the world today? I really believe that that's what's got Peter. This whole thing that you were talking about, this whole kingdom life that I was being called into, I've blown it. And Jesus is saying, you had not blown it enough where I can't handle it. You're not dark enough that my light can't shine. You're not too deep where I can't go. Maybe somewhere along the way, you've been convinced that the vision of God for your life no longer exists. That your calling has been revoked and your purpose is no longer to be significant, but it's meant to be mundane. And so you've reverted back to a safe life. You've reverted back to what's known, what's comfortable. You've gone back to your old friends. You've gone back to your old ways. It's life like fishing before fishing was for men. Man, does Jesus have greater plans for you. My first night back on the job didn't go too well for Peter and the others who were with him. I didn't catch a single thing. And isn't that just like God? Where he just doesn't help us to be fulfilled and satisfied in the midst of our rebellion? Where you just don't feel that satisfaction. It's the reason why many people are just looking for it, hungering for it, craving for it, running for it, trying to get it in some other way because they feel like they're not going to get it in Christ. I remember my junior year of high school, God had shaped my life to be a preaching pastor. And that came to certainty. I was 16 years old. Through a series of events and through experiences that were very meaningful and specific by God, I knew without a doubt that was the calling of God in my life. And I knew it because the gifts that he had given to me were aligning with the call that I was sensing from him. People would come up to me without me asking and affirm the call of God through the giftedness that he had given to me. At first, I thought that was kind of cool, except when I became more and more rebellious to that idea I didn't want to hear them. I determined that that was not what I wanted for my life, as if my life belonged to me. So instead of graduating and going on into college to prepare for a life call that Jesus had given to me, I went on to UAB with an undeclared major. You know what undeclared means. I ain't got a clue. I had the clue. I had the whole narrative. I was just rebellious. And God did not allow me to be successful in that. Now, I knew that to be the case when the dean sent me a letter that said, you're not very successful. And instead of writing him back, I just came to a two-word conclusion. I quit. And I did. And I can remember right now in my parents' home where they were, I can remember the room, I can remember where they were seated, and I remember where I was seated when they said to me, if you want to come into the family business, we'll help you. It's exactly what Peter did. In his rebellious state, he went back to the family business. They said to me, because they're throwing me a lifeline, right? 
because now I've got a wife, I've got a son. They're throwing me a lifeline, and I take it. And they were very good at what they did, and they were good teachers. And they taught me and shaped me in the business. And at 25 years old, I'm, I'm selling real estate. I'm a broker of a company. I'm the president of the company, making over $100,000 a year. 25, thinking, hey, this is great. Among the top producers, top 2% in all the Birmingham metro area. Life was great, except that I was absolutely dissatisfied, unfulfilled, and deeply longing. It was one night in a church service that the Spirit of God spoke to me. It's one of those unique experiences that it's as as if he is speaking audibly. He's not speaking internally, but he was saying, hey, Randy, you're at a crossroads. And at this crossroad, you can continue on your path of rebellion if you want to, or this could be the day that you move to the path of obedience. Now listen to this. As God is my witness, I heard him say in my spirit, and this will be the last time I offer that to you. By God's grace, I said, I don't know what this means. I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how I'll care for my family. But God, I say yes. I went back to school, this time with a degree in religion and family studies as a minor. Went on to get my master's degree in divinity and by the goodness of God, got letters from the deans again, but this time it was that a boys. It's amazing what God does when you're walking in the steps that he's called you to walk. Now, does that mean you're going to all make the dean's list? No, and I didn't all the time either. Um, but I'm telling you the satisfaction is there. All right, can I just say, Kay and I have had some rough days in ministry. We've had some seasons that have been incredibly dry. We've had moments together that we have wept together, and I've had moments and hours that I've done it alone. But deep in me is the satisfaction of knowing I'm where God has called me to be. Do you have that? Have you let failures like mine thwart you? Have you disengaged from the significant call of God in your life and you're living safe and mundane, insignificant, when God is saying, oh, I had such dreams for you. I'm telling that God does not want you to stay in your rebellion. I remember with my boys, it was difficult, but when they were in the rebellious places of their life, I did my best to get them out of that. Why? Because Kay and I had dreams for them. We had hopes for them. We had a great plan for their future that they would do things in a way that would honor God so we would not let them stay in a place of rebellion. We would move them to a place of obedience. Now, we couldn't be their mind for them, but we could do all we could do as parents to get them on the right path if they would be willing to do it. And maybe that's where God is today. Maybe he's saying to you, this is your crossroads, and I'm doing all that I can do to get you out of the place of rebellion, out of the detour of life, into my pathway, so that you can do great, significant things for this world, for my kingdom, for my glory. Will you join him? This is your day. This is your crossroads day. 
Maybe you've reverted back to the old and God is saying, oh, I make all things new. Secondly, the way we view God in ourselves when we fail may determine whether we experience continued misery or experience triumph. If you're viewing God as filled with anger and demanding justice for your sinfulness and your failures, then you are viewing God wrongly. I'll just remind us the grace of the gospel is that God took all of our sin and all of our failure and put it on his beloved son who knew no sin so that all of God's justice and wrath and righteousness could be poured out on him so that every drop was on Jesus Christ, not a single drop left for you or me to be able to manage, but Jesus took it all and God was satisfied, completely satisfied with that. So the way you view God needs to be in his gospel. God is not asking you to pay for your debt. He's cleared you of your debt. God is not asking you to pay for your sin. Jesus paid the cost of your sin. Trust him. Come back. Don't let that failure stop you from God's call in your life because Jesus has already paid for the sin. Have faith that God has provided such grace. And that he wants to restore you. Now listen, that doesn't mean that God is not grieved by our sin. He is deeply grieved by our sin. It does not mean that God will not discipline us in our sin because he disciplines all that he loves. So he will certainly do that. But it means that God is for us. And he's moving to restore us. To bring us back to the hope and the future that he had for us. Your failures are not too big for God to handle. They are not too dark. They are not too, too deep and far away. You remember Corey Timboom? Maybe you remember her more than you remember her sister, Betsy Timboom. But those three sisters faced misery among the German Holocaust. They saw sin at a depth that few people ever see it. So it wasn't just that they knew sin personally, but they saw sin at a deep, miserable, dark place. And looking back, Betsy Timboom says this, there is no pit so deep, but that God is not deeper still. If you believe that your sin is too deep, if you believe that your sin is too dark, then you need to ask God to give you fresh eyes. Fresh eyes to see Him there. He will be in the midst of the darkness with you to guide you out of that. And he will be not just in the depth of your sin. He will even go under to lift you up out of your sin. That's the reason why God the Son left the throne of glory to come to the place of sin. He wanted to be with us to lift us out of that. Let him do it. Let him do it. Number three, Jesus comes to love us comes to give us grace and truth when we fail and our response has to be to love him and to walk in repentance and obedience you know one of the greatest parts of the narrative to me is that when the, the guys see the sun start to come up they find Jesus is already on the shoreline waiting for him he's calling out to him children did you catch anything now you and I might think calling grown men children Sounds a little odd. He's not using the same word for children that you and I would use. There's a couple of words for children that are written in the Bible. And in this case, this word children is for a superior that's talking to those who are 
who are underneath his guidance. He's calling out to them, children, did you catch anything? And of course, their simple response is no. We didn't catch a thing. And Jesus says to them, well, go on out. Throw it out on the other side. Just cast the net again. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, Jesus is recreating the same miracle that he gave Peter when he called him first into the ministry. So a couple of things are going on here. Calling them children is to help them to see, including Peter, your relationship with me has not changed. You're still a son. Or listen to me, ladies. In the failure, you're still a daughter. Your failure doesn't change your relationship with God. Children, did you catch anything? Not a thing. Well, throw your net on the other side. And 153 large fish were caught. That made John say, that's the Lord. Peter wasn't going to wait. They're only a football field offshore. He jumps in the water, can't wait to get there. I can only imagine if they didn't have to drag the nets, the other guys would say, you should have stayed in the boat. We could have gotten here faster than you swimming. But Peter needed his Savior. He began to see Jesus differently. Man, that's my prayer for you. What he finds on that shore changes everything. Jesus has already got a coal fire going. Hey, by the way, only two times in Scripture that a coal fire is mentioned. This time, Jesus has a coal fire burning on the shore. He's got fish cooking, bread baking. You know what the other time was? Peter standing around a fire on the night of the eve of the crucifixion of Jesus, denying his Savior. So Jesus is resetting the scene, isn't he? Here we are again. It's bringing him back to that place. Now listen, Jesus is not there to shame him. But what he is saying to Peter is, we need to deal with this. He's doing it in love. He's not pointing backwards at the failure. He's pointing forward to the future. He's saying to Peter, we need to deal with this. We need to deal with your your arrogance and your boastfulness and your, your way of doing things on your own. We need to deal with this. And so he begins to challenge him. Three times Peter had denied him on that night. And now this morning around the same kind of fire, Jesus says, hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, do I love you? Yes. Then you need to feed my sheep. That's what I called you to do. Peter, do you love me? Lord, yes. I love you. You detend my sheep because that's what I called you to do third time this one got him sort of settled in he probably saw the coals remembered that night remembered the three denials now the three calls of affirmation of love the third time got him the Bible says all came to conclusion Lord, you know all things. 
You know I love you. And you feed my sheep. So here we are. We're back on the shoreline. God has brought you back to your point of failure. He's not doing it in shame. He's doing it for you who are saved, saying, I paid for that. I paid for that. Be released and be restored. Now, he's going to call you to repentance. He's going to call you to have godly sorrow. He's going to call you to think differently about it. He's going to call you to submit to him. That's what he's doing with Peter. He's telling him, you're not going to be able to live like you used to live. You can't be out here fishing in your little safe environment among the things that you know. You're going you're gonna to go places that you don't want to go, but you're going to do it for my glory. You're going to die in a way that would be glorious, but it would be painful. And he's asking him still, are you willing to follow me? Follow me. So here we are. Some of you have been railroaded long enough and the Spirit of God is saying, here's the crossroad. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Whatever these is. And you say yes. Then he says, follow me. Do what I've called you to do. Follow me. Now let me pray. This moment, Lord, I pray that your spirit is speaking in unique ways. And I pray that your spirit is helping people to respond in unique ways. Oh God, thank you for restoration. For the one who is restored becomes the power of Christ. Use the people today uniquely to bring glory to Jesus. I pray it in his name.